On September 11, 1874, the John German family, consisting of his wife and seven children, were attacked by a band of Cheyenne east of Fort Wallace, Kansas. Only four of the children, Catherine, Sophia, Julia, and Adelaide, were spared and taken captive. The two youngest, Julia and Adelaide, aged seven and five, were subsequently abandoned on the prairie in what is now the Texas Panhandle. Catherine and Sophia were kept by their Cheyenne captors. Wild West Podcast proudly presents the story of the German family ambush with our special guest afterwards, Mr. Scott Dean. While in the Staked Plains area searching for the retreating Comanche and Apache war parties, Miles received word of a family being ambushed by 17 Cheyenne dog soldiers. The dead were John German, aged 44, Lydia, his wife, aged 44, Rebecca Jane, aged 20, Stefan, aged 19, and Joanna, aged 15. Carried away as captives were Catherine, aged 17, Sophia, aged 12, Julia, aged 7, and Adelaide, aged 5. After a season of plowing on the Osage Indian Reservation, John German decided to leave the beautiful rolling prairie of Elgin, Kansas, to finish his dream. He wanted to reach Colorado before the first snowfall. In addition to wages, the family left Elgin, having earned an additional milk cow, two calves, and several chickens. The John German family, consisted of his wife and seven children, left on August 15, 1874. They had been on the westward trail for over four years. The family made rapid headway as they moved northwestward across Kansas. They were in Ellis City, Kansas, a few miles west of Fort Hayes, by early September. John planned to push another dozen miles north and follow the Kansas Pacific Railroad westward into Colorado. However, several local citizens advised John to take the old stagecoach route along the Smoky Hill River a few miles to the south, because of the lack of water along the railroad. In answer to John's apprehensions about the safety of the route, he was told that there had been no problems in the area for years. And so the German family lumbered forward along the Smoky Hill Road, and for several days' travel, at least 75 miles, they witnessed not a single dwelling, nor another human being. Unknown to them, there were terrible threats ahead on the trail, for far to the south, a fierce Indian war had broken out and extended northward into the Kansas Plains. On June 27, 1874, hundreds of Indians had attacked buffalo hunters at Adobe Walls, 300 miles to the south in the Texas Panhandle. Badly mauled in the attack, the angry warriors split into small bands and turned against any whites they could find. One of the raging bands across the plains from the south consisted of 17 Cheyenne warriors under Medicine Water. Two Indian women accompanied them, one of whom, Moki, the wife of Medicine Water, had lost her first husband and most of her family at the hands of white troops in the 1864 massacre of her village on Sand Creek, Colorado Territory. By September 10, 1874, the nine members of the German family had marched into the wild and secluded plains of west-central Kansas. Still, on that day, the family met two men driving a wagon eastward who told them that they were within a day's journey of Fort Wallace, near the Colorado border. The entire family was relieved to learn that they were approaching a settlement again, 
and were close to the end of their long and arduous journey. They camped for the night on a dry creek bed, from which John secured water by digging a hole in the sand. Johanna and Catherine gathered wood for a fire, while Sophia fed the chickens and John and Stefan milked the cows. After supper, the adults and older children remained awake longer than usual, excited by the prospect of seeing people again on the following day. That night, perhaps bothered by some instinctive fear, John and Stefan stood watch, armed with their only weapons, two old muzzle-loading rifles. The family was up at dawn on September 11th and looked out at the verdant landscape before them, as if taking in the mighty breaths of country pure air. Then, with breakfast made, the oxen were hitched and the wagon was on its way. John walked in the lead with his rifle, as if the path ahead of him had a way of exciting his emotions, as if he may have realized trouble was afoot. Stefan and Catherine went a brief stretch to the north of the wagon to drive in the milk cows and the calves from their grazing ground. Then, unexpectedly, sweeping out of a ravine a short distance to the southwest, came Medicine Waters' screaming Cheyennes. Overcome by shock and hysteria, the German family were easy victims. John turns, but too slowly to be expected. When he speaks, his voice trailed slowly like his words were unwilling to take flight. There's a sadness in his eyes, and his panic overwhelms him as he fades away at a moment's notice. John German was shot down. The warrior woman, Moki, jumped from her horse and planted an axe in John's skull. Lydia German was murdered as she desperately strived to aid her husband, and Rebecca, seizing an axe to fight the Indians, was also bashed down. Stefan escaped from the scene toward a ridge in the northeast, but was easily ridden down and butchered. Catherine was hit in the thigh, but a big Indian jumped from his horse pulled out the arrow, and galloped back to the wagon with the girl. Collecting the five surviving sisters together, the Indians forced all the girls to take off their bonnets and compare their hair. Joanna's hair was the longest, so a rifle was pressed against her body and she was murdered. Five-year-old Adelaide began to wail and was rescued only by the intervention of the second Indian woman who claimed the child. All of the five dead Germans were then scalped and mutilated. The Cheyenne set fire to the wagon, and in the morning sun came the golden glow with the heat given by the burning of the fire. The sounds of the victims fell silent, and the smell of death circled in the air. The war party mounted their captives on horses and proceeded southward, driving the Germans' oxen and milk cows before them. Retrieving their saddles and gear, the Indians soon stopped and slaughtered the cattle, offering the four captives half-cooked meat, which they were too frightened to eat. The captives were also divided. The Indian woman who saved Adelaide claimed her, while her husband accepted Julia. When word of the German family reached Miles and his men, finding the four kidnapped girls became their new mission. Bat Masterson and the scouts learned that the dog soldiers had entered the panhandle. They also heard that the German sisters had been separated, with two girls going with a band headed by Greybeard, and the other two with Stonecalf. The Cheyenne bands and the white girls with them proved very elusive as the weeks passed. Incredibly frustrating was the thought that two or all four of the German sisters had been brought hundreds of miles to Mexico and traded away there. If so, they would never be recovered. The scouts consoled themselves that Cheyenne was not known to go that far south, away from their hunting grounds and familiar surroundings. They kept searching and hoping. 
the scouts found Greybeard's camp on November 7th. A few days earlier, the more experienced ones had speculated that the Cheyenne would follow their routine and began to set up a winter camp near McClellan Creek. So Miles dispatched a contingent of soldiers and scouts to find out. On the morning of the 8th, Bat Masterson and the scouts arrived atop a slope near the creek. When they looked down, they spotted dozens of teepees along the creek. After the scouts reported the location of the Indian camp, Frank Baldwin became an impulsive and brave man. Baldwin did not wait for Company N to arrive and decided to attack immediately. The lieutenant loaded his infantry into supply wagons. The cavalry, the infantry and wagons, and the scouts charged the camp on order. Even the limbered howitzer rolled forward on the line with the troops. The shouts of the soldiers, the rumbling of the wagons, the crack of carbines, and the repeated bugle calls sent the village into panicked flight. Never before had the Cheyenne seen such a sight. Blue-clad soldiers rode into the village in wagons and shot over the sides. These Cheyennes were entirely taken by surprise. Baldwin had taken advantage of the Indians' lack of security. He had increased that advantage with the shock action of the infantry fighting in wagons while moving quickly along the terrain. Lieutenant Baldwin's attack was immediately successful. The Cheyennes left everything except the horses they rode when escaping. During the brief battle, most of the inhabitants of the village fled. After chasing the Indians several miles, the white troops returned to the abandoned camp where General Miles appeared with four troops of cavalry. As some of the soldiers stood surveying the village, an Indian galloped up and shot at a pile of buffalo robes lying nearby on the ground. One of the soldiers immediately killed the Indian. Drawn by movement under the robes, a soldier carefully raised them with a rifle barrel and discovered Julia German hidden beneath. A search of the teepees led to the discovery of Adelaide nearby. The children were so emaciated and weak that the younger child could not walk without falling down. Bat Masterson later recalled that their little hands looked like bird's claws. Bat Masterson and the soldiers in the command were obviously very shaken by the pathetic condition of the children, and one of the sergeants openly wept. Today we have a special guest, Scott Dean. Scott Dean is the great-grandson of Julia German and her second husband, Albert Brooks. Her first husband died while she was pregnant with their third child. Mr. Dean has directed music in classical, sanctuary worship services for 39 years, developing music programs and leaders to give voice to singers of all ages. He has conducted research in early music in London, Paris, and Rome, contributed to professional publications, and has held leadership positions in the American Choral Directors Association. This podcast is a follow-up story on the German family ambush of September 11th, 1874, near Fort Wallace, Kansas. Thank you so much for Scott agreeing to join us this Wednesday. What Mike has found during his time researching the German family story is that there seems to be some inconsistencies among various writers about the historical accounts of the German family ambush. What we hope to do here is to get a first-person account as it was told by your great-grandmother, Julia German. During the Red River War, while searching for the retreating Comanche and Apache war parties in the Staked Plains area, Miles received word of a family being ambushed by 17 Cheyenne dog soldiers. The dead were John German, age 44, Lydia, his wife, age 44, 
Rebecca Jane, age 20, Stefan, age 19, and Joanna, age 15. Carried away as captives were Catherine, age 17, Sophia, age 12, Julia, age 7, and Adelaide, age 5. Before the ambush and capture of the German girls, where did John German and his family live before leaving Elgin, Kansas on August 15, 1874, Scott? Well, since the end of the Civil War, with uh, John German's health being compromised from incarceration in Union POW camps, uh, Rock Island in particular, and his small Fanning County, Georgia farm devastated after the war, he had been dreaming of a better life and had received a letter from a friend encouraging him to travel west to Colorado. He couldn't raise the money for a train or even a wagon train. Uh, association, so he decided to work his way west. On April 10, 1870, the family of nine with six girls and one boy in from their mid-teens to toddler age, they said their goodbyes and headed northwest, crossing the Tennessee River, traveling the Cumberland Toll Road, and after three weeks on the road, arriving in Sparta, Tennessee. Uh, so John and son Stephen worked on a plantation, and the girls worked in homes for three months, trying to secure enough funds to continue on through Tennessee, Kentucky, and across the Mississippi to Howell County in Missouri. There, they traded their oxen and wagon for a homestead. Um, I think it was about 160 acres with a cabin. In 1871, the entire family was working for really low wages, just struggling, doing whatever they could. Um, including going up to Arkansas to pick cotton. So I think malaria ran through the family in 18, at the end of that year and through 1872, and they couldn't even pay the 50-cent taxes on the homestead. In the spring of 1873, John exchanged the homestead for, for a wagon, a team of oxen, to travel 150 miles northwest uh, near Hurley, I think it is, Missouri, where they stayed with Lydia's uncle, Rufus, a long-established and prosperous pioneer there. After four months of work, they traveled on to Elgin, where they stayed for 10 months with John and his older children working on the Osage Reservation, starting with breaking sod in, in the winter. Can you imagine what that was like? It had been 10 years since John's dream of a better life in Colorado. And so after about four and a half years of rugged travel and hard itinerant work, John and his family had earned minimal funds for travel expenses. The food and the family, they, they traveled six, over 800 miles on foot. So 700 miles of the Kansas Plain and the severe drought stood between them and their dream of homesteading in Colorado. Little did they know that was the least of their worries. So what happened then on the, the dawn of September 11th, 1874, which would be the day of the ambush? My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities 
under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War. Who was this enemy of the United States? He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. They were advised to take the Butterfield Overland Despatch uh, Trail because there was a drought and uh, John wanted to follow the train route where he hoped to be able to, you know, have water on his travels. They were advised that they wouldn't even be able to buy a cup and that um, going along the Smoky Hill Trail near the Smoky Hill Trail River and the dispatch, that they would at least have contact with even a dry bed that could dig out uh, some water. So they were they were traveling took refuge one night going slightly off the trail and down into a small gully where the where the creek off the river was, Six Mile Creek, I believe it is. And there they camped for the night. Father went and dug into the creek and brought up some water and they cleaned it up and they had supper and went to bed. And the next morning, took their oxen back up and went up the ridge and were surprised by this band of fierce dog soldiers. They'd probably scouted them out the night before. I was at the site recently surveying the area, and they spoke with the um, owner of the property, Randy Yunkin, and the Smoky Y Ranch. Wonderful, wonderful, gracious people, and they shared with me their sort of forensic thinking together of the land based on the story, the documents, that the girls provided. The Indians were likely in a, in a ravine a little south of them and came out of that ravine at the top of a slight rise where the Germans, they met the Germans uh, coming up. They disbanded um, all of their pack and other things and, and attacked the family. John was out in front and he had a rifle. And even in the Civil War, he told uh, his children that he shot over the heads of his enemies because he didn't want to kill another father and have be responsible for a homeless family, our fatherless family. So he didn't even get a shot off. Mochi, who was a Buffalo calf woman uh, and a fierce female raider of uh, part of the dog soldiers, which is pretty unusual. And Medicine Water led the band of 17. They they killed John right away. Mochi put it hatchet in his hand. They shot Stephen, who was out shooting, looking for game. They killed Lydia, mother, who was pregnant at the time. And we won't go into what, how she was treated. And then their eldest daughter uh, came out of, out of the wagon and grabbed a hatchet and tried to attack one of the Indians. And she was killed on the spot. Another, the other daughters, Rebecca, Jane, and uh, the four girls that were eventually taken captive were then taken, um, and it was they were deciding the Indians wanted they stood them up next to the wagon, wanted to decide who was going to go with them and who they were going to leave. They took the bonnets off, and based on the hair and the scalp, uh, they decided who would stay and, and who would go. There's a little story. Uh, we're not really sure whether Rebecca Jane was killed on the spot or if she was killed later on the trail. 
the four girls then were were taken hostage. The 17-year-old Catherine, 12-year-old Sophia, 7-year-old uh, Julia, my great-grandmother, and um, her little sister, Addie. Later, the massacre had been discovered by hunters. Uh, it was reported to Fort Wallace. They investigated. They found the family Bible. And that's how the soldiers knew that the girls had been taken hostage. So what was life like then for the, uh, uh, the younger girls while in captivity? And why do you think Little Squaw became protective of the girls? Well, in short, I think I'll, ca- I'll call her Little S Woman out of respect. In short, I think Little S Woman was empathetic. Uh, she was the niece of Stone Calf, who was one of the first um, chiefs to move his starving and desolate people and onto the reservation while others held out and battled. He later, later dissuaded other young bucks from revenge raiding parties that began after the unsuccessful attack on the buffalo hunters and others at, at Adobe Walls. The dog soldiers who attacked the German family and perhaps others their entire family and tribe were murdered by Shivington and the Colorado Sand Creek Massacre of 1864 and Custer's infamous um, Washita Massacre in 1868, two events that forever changed the relationship between natives and the United States. So perhaps little uh, woman wasn't filled with wasn't filled with 10 years of trauma, outrage, hatred. So the white soldiers who murdered her entire tribe and family in cold blood at San Cruz and Washita, as Mochi and Medicine Water were. The experience of the two younger girls, Julie and Addie, is quite different than that of 12-year-old Sophia and 17-year-old Catherine. We know more of Catherine's story than Sophia's thanks to the work of Grace Meredith, who's the author of Girl Captives of the Cheyenne, published, I believe, in 1820 or 1928. It's a 112-page book by Meredith, the niece of Catherine, and it tells us in the first person of the account of her aunt. Catherine and Sophia were in captivity for five months, from September 11, 1874, until early March 1875. So when the loot and the captives were divided among the attackers after the massacre, little S-woman chose Addie since she saved her life when a rifle was placed at the five-year-old's head to silence her crying. Her husband, possibly Blackmoon, chose Julia. <clears throat> Catherine indicates they, they seemed compassionate compared with the others in the party. So first, Catherine became the property of the fierce 42-year-old medicine water. Sophia was taken by a younger warrior. When they neared, well, they were, they were tied up and taken south towards Medicine Water's camp. When they neared Medicine Water's camp, the girl was placed on a bareback pony behind her captor, who had dressed in their fiercest, finest, finest uh, attire and painted their faces. Their mother and sister's blonde hair, along with their father's and brother's scalps, were attached to the warrior's rifles and, and blowing in the breeze as the war party raced across the prairie for four or five miles until the ponies were good, wet, and lathered up. Then charging through the camp of about 300 lodges, they were attacked from all sides by screaming, shrieking men and women and children, all tugging, yanking, pulling at the girls to pull them off their mount. Some of the Indians seemed sympathetic, others just really mean. 
Here are Catherine's words describing their introduction to the encampment as trophies of the raiding party from my cousins, Arlene Johnson's The Moccasin Speaks. She says, my clothes were torn from me. I was stripped naked and painted by the old squaws and made the wife of the chief who could catch me when fastened upon the back of a horse, which was set loose on the prairie. I don't know what Indian caught me. I was made the victim of their desires. Nearly all of the tribe whipped time and again. So I no doubt that the same occurred to 12-year-old Addie or Sophia. Sophia's captor was Bear Shield. He won the privilege of keeping her since nobody had snatched her. Bear Shield traded Sophia to Wolfrobe, a leading warrior of Greybeard's band, and, and 20 years older, I think. And he may have traded her to Sandhill. I, I believe she was bartered or shared by, by, with many by her owners. Catherine was yanked from her captor's horse by an Indian woman, Wasati. Wasati became her Indian mother and her 53-year-old husband, Longback, her father. There's another report that came up that I see later that Longback had purchased Catherine for Black Moon. So while in the camp, there were, they weren't allowed, the girls weren't allowed to be together and were separated each with their own owner and their own camp for the majority of the time in captivity. There's just some confusion and contradictory reports in who had who when. And that needs clarity. And I, I look forward to figuring that out, setting the, the research and, and books and working with Anita Gullet, who has microfish of all of the National Archives on this down in Tampa. So Indian Plains women, you know, they, they did all the heavy lifting, uh, the firewood, water gathering for group distances, uh, carrying heavy snow to turn into water, butchering, canning, uh, all the hard work. They were also very chaste. They slept with chastity ropes to carrying their ankles and knees together. But when the girls were sent to collect water at night alone, you can guess what happened. They were assaulted by young bucks. Catherine was receptive to learning the Cheyenne language. She and her Indian brother, that's right, an Indian brother, quite bilingual, and their stories of closeness with her Indian mother, Wapsita. When they were in private, they were pretty close, but in front of others, she was mean as she was expected to be. Younger Sophia seemed to understand the advantage of learning the language, so she didn't try. Cheyenne women chopped wood for Catherine in exchange for sewing bright clothing on their dresses. The men always were pleased when she sewed their shirts with stitch buttonholes uh, with bone buttons. The girls relieved their anxiety, depression, and fear through working hard and never considered work slavery, but a gift, actually a gift from God to keep their minds active and to, to relieve just a lot of hurt in their hearts. Sophia was certain her life was spared because she continually worked. They were both um, a commodity to be traded and bartered, and appears Sophia may have borne the brunt of that more than Catherine. However, Catherine, being age 17, seems to have suffered more depredation than Sophia. Catherine seems to have suffered all the greater from PTSD, but we'll never really, really know all of them for a lot of pain throughout their lives. Wasati informed Catherine 
at one point that she was old enough to be married, and, and uh, Catherine refused, of course. One night, Catherine was terribly frightened when a warrior tried to carry her to his lodge, for if he succeeded, then she would become uh, his wife. So she fought like a tiger. He threw her to the ground, and Catherine understood the warrior to call Wasati, I will not take her while she fights, she says. Wasati had bartered Catherine, actually, to the highest bidder. So there's stories of Wasati's kindness and care and others of neglect, hostility, and abuse. To paint it all, all one way or the other it really isn't fair. So Stone eventually convinced Medicine Water and Greybeard to surrender the hostages after many weeks of further suffering and death of the Cheyenne during this deadly winter of 1874. And due to the starvation, the loss of shelter, clothing, cooking supplies from the numerous army attacks and desecration of their land. Scott, that is fascinating and uh, awful. Uh, story. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. So on November 8th, Baldwin's troops had stumbled upon Greybeard's camp. Medicine Water, who led the attack on the German family in Kansas, had been in the camp as well. Greybeard himself had come into possession of Sophia German, but managed to get her away during Baldwin's attack. What happened to Sophia? A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, so we know less about Sophia than we do Catherine. Sophia went through. So this is this is where I'm a little a little fuzzy, and this is a difficult question to answer specifically. We don't have a real timeline of of Sophia, and got more work to do to really understand, you know, the number of people that she was martyred to, and and her experiences. So during the brief battle, uh, most of the village inhabitants fled to fight another day. Those that left behind were the elderly. As some of the soldiers stood surveying the village, an Indian galloped up and shot at a pile of buffalo robes laying nearby on the ground. The Indian was immediately killed. Why do you suppose the Indian sacrificed his life to shoot at the buffalo robes? And what did the soldiers find? Leave no trace. They, you know, anything that the girls would be telling about their captives would be evidence for their their captor's murder um, or their hanging or execution. So he's trying to get rid of, of the evidence. Um, they didn't want to find the girls alive. They apparently knew that Julia was under the, the buffalo hides. And even if he had gotten the shot off, it's possible that, that she wanted that it wanted to have, you know, gone through the hides themselves, but thankfully he he didn't. Addie was found foraging for food in in a TP later. According to some historical accounts, then, that once Julia and Addie were found, they were emaciated and weak from poor nourishment. What were the condition of the girls, and were they treated that poorly by the Cheyenne? And what happened to Julia and Addie after they were rescued? 
after the massacre, all the girls were tied down, taken south by the war party. And after about two weeks, they arrived in the area of Medicine Waters Camp in the vicinity of present-day Panther, Texas, McKellen Creek area. So on their way during a respite on the trail, pretty close, about 10 miles away from the encampment, there was some discussion among the captors. Uh, then seven-year-old Julia, five-year-old Addie were removed from their horses by two braves. They're really not identified in, in the documents. While the rest of the warriors and their older sisters continued on. So the braves made motions for the little ones to follow, but they couldn't keep up and they were abandoned. They were left behind. There's no mention of, of little Esselman or, um, or her husband, you know, being a part of this. They presumably knew what, what needed to be done for the good of the, of the tribe. When the babes caught up with the party without Jimmy and Addie, Catherine and Sophia assumed that they'd been killed. So from roughly the 24th of September to early November, approximately six weeks, these two little ones survived in the plains of the Texas Panhandle, naked, with only a stall between the two of them. I've been in this area last fall, and I can tell you the nights can be freezing, and the wind, it drops the daytime temperatures 10 degrees or more. I stood alone on the pitch black darkness of the plains near McKellen Creek with the freezing wind blowing, coyotes howling. It, it was terrifying. I can't believe how to, I can't imagine what it was like for my great grandmother and her little sister. It's just unbelievable. But most of their lives, I put it in perspective, most of the lives the girls had been traveling through the wilderness. Maddie was, was a toddler, and Julia wasn't much, was what, two years older? So we can assume their father had taught Julia a few things. For example, she relates that she was taught to sleep in different places to avoid becoming prey for wolves who would, you know, come across them and then seek them out with their packs later when they were hungry. Cheap wagon wheel tracks could lead them to white people. For Indians, they didn't have wagons. They were without food, water, or shelter, but miraculously, and I believe only by God's grace and intervention, they survived by searching for hackberries, wild onions, grapes, rotting plums, uh, there's a wild orchard nearby, according to Anita Gullet, the White Deerland Museum. There were also grassroots that she related eating. But the greatest excitement was scourging an old Indian camp in a military post for spilled grains and dried corn and, and some old hardtack. So the girls made a pact that whatever they found, they'd share. Julie would adventure further out into the wild than Addie. But at one point, Addie found a biscuit or some hardtack, and she couldn't help herself. She devoured the whole thing. Of course, she felt horrible about that and later confessed to Julia. And they both wept, holding each other in rocking, consoling one another. So we, we don't know why they were abandoned. Why weren't they just killed like so many other young hostages? But we do know that they were left within striking distance of the camp. And that would be a dead giveaway for any, for any soldier or scout. And they were all over the place looking for for medicine water and the other Cheyenne. Now, the Cheyenne relate that they were left on the trail for the Army 
defined. But for me, that just, I, you know, I'm not a specialist, but I, I just doesn't jive with the wisdom and tactics of what I know of the Plains Indians. But in early November, word reached Stonecap that the U.S. military was demanding the return of the four girls. They had been, of course, searching for them. And he gave orders to find the two younger girls left on the prairie. And uh, one account is a large number of them went in search for them. And they found them. They did find them. And they returned them to Medicine Waters Camp. Yeah. Amazing. Just another, just amazing part of the story. It was the day before Baldwin's surprise attack. Now, and this happened a couple of weeks later. There were torrential, cold, hail, rain, freezing rain. They surely they surely would have died. Scott, we cannot thank you enough for, for sharing all of this with us and, and uh, being a guest on our, our podcast today. But we would like to ask you a little bit more about what exactly is your personal desire when others retell this story in keeping with the girl's legacy intact as the story is passed on from one generation to the next? You know, I think perspective is really important. We need to understand what occurred before this attack. There's good people and bad people on both sides of the story. We need to, I believe our culture is is in sore need of empathy and understanding. As the old saying goes, to walk in another's shoe before you can you can judge their experience. So I would hope that people would would look at this story from both sides. The girls even though they've suffered greatly, they came away with heavy hearts for the plight of their captors. The two older girls suffered along with them in that harsh winter of 1875, January, February. They witnessed the dying, the starvation. The children, the elderly, the infirmed were first to go. They carried that with them for the rest of their lives. And the Moxton speaks, speaks to tell the perspective of that story in a fair and a balanced way. I would hope that people would, would take time to learn one other, another story and to uh, give them grace. There's a lot of goodness that's already coming out of, of the projects that are going on ar- around this story. I've met many family members and my brothers and sisters, Native Nation, have met many of their uh, family members. So there's already a lot of good that's coming out of this story. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I'm so, so happy. I wish I didn't have this story, but I am so happy that I, I, I do have this bit of history and that I can share it and hopefully bring some goodness out of it and healing. Well, Scott, I think we're, we're absolutely on your side in that regard too. And, and we hope that in sharing this, getting to the, the meat of the historical accuracy uh, and hopefully sharing a little bit of that empathy as well is uh, Absolutely what we hope to get out of this also. So thank you again so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. The references used to incorporate historical facts for this episode on the Red River War includes School of Advanced Military Studies, United States Army Command and General Staff College, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, entitled The Red River War, 1874, Evidence of Operational Art and Mission Command. Charlton Mosley. Georgians on the Western Frontier, The Cheyenne Massacre and Captivity of a Fannin County Family, 
The Georgia Historical Quarterly, Volume 76, Number 1, Georgia Historical Society. That's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West Podcast shows on iTunes Podcast or at wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. And if you like our shows, be sure to share them on your favorite social media platform. You can also catch us on Facebook at facebook.com slash wildwestpodcast or on our YouTube channel at Whiskey and Westerns on Wednesday. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Join us next time as we take you back to the life and times of Bat Masterson Part 3, Gamblers, Gunfighters, and Saloon Girls. You can learn more about the legends of Dodge City by visiting our website at worldfamousgunfighters.weebly.com. If you would like to purchase one of our books, you can go to worldfamousgunfighters.weebly.com slash books.html. Thank you.